negotiation. We tend to think of it as the high-profile, dramatic negotiations portrayed in movies and TV shows. Although everyday sales negotiations are far less dramatic, they still carry high stakes. Our guest is one of the world's top experts in sales, and he says most sales professionals aren't good at negotiation. Let's start fixing that. Today, it's my conversation with Jim Blunt, author of the book, Inked, The Ultimate Guide to Powerful Closing and Sales Negotiation Tactics That Unlock Yes and Seal the Deal on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I help business professionals, association members, and entire organizations to get the most out of their everyday business conversations, the ones that generate by far the most growth opportunities. That means improvements in your revenue, customer engagement, employee engagement, and your brand and reputation. I do that through consulting, professional speaking, and advisory work. When you visit my website, jimcar.com, you'll find examples of speaking topics, as well as testimonials and recommendations from clients across a number of businesses and industries. You'll also find a number of free resources covering the three foundational components for managing your message. First, the message itself, meaning the words, stories, and evidence you want your marketplace to know about. Second, your messengers, the network of people who can help you share that message. And third, management habits that will shape your culture and turn your improvements into a competitive advantage. For more, you can check out my book, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. And you can find that in all of the usual places fine business books are sold. And there's an audiobook version as well that you can find on Audible and Apple. And you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I would welcome that. You can also find my direct email and phone number on the website. We bring all of this together for you because, simply put, it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. You're in for a treat today. Jeb Blunt is making his first visit to the Manager Message podcast, fresh from yet another success with the Outbound Conference. If you're familiar with the top speakers, authors, and trainers in the world of sales, then you have heard Jeb's name. You likely have heard Jeb. There is a reason. He is known as the hardest working man in sales. Jeb Blunt is the best-selling author of, I believe now, 13 books. He is a thought leader and a very practical leader as well when it comes to sales, leadership, and customer experience. He is almost everywhere delivering keynotes, workshops, and training programs to high-performing sales teams and leaders around the world. He is also the founder of a sales training and consulting firm that has one of the coolest business names you will ever hear, Sales Gravy. Jeb, I love gravy, and I'm delighted that you have made it here to the Manager Message podcast. Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it, and I just want to make sure we're laying down the uh, gauntlet. I know that Hunter and Areno have been on your podcast. This podcast will be better than their podcast and your listeners can vote, but I'm just telling you straight up, this will be better. 
we will tag them in social media and they will be jealous. Right, Jeb, I'm anxious to, to talk about your latest book, Inked. First, if we may, I'd like to set some context because you and three other very notable sales experts, including the aforementioned Mark Hunter and Anthony Reno, as well as Victor Antonio, you established the Outbound Conference several years ago. As we record today, you are less than a week removed from the, uh, the end of Outbound 2021. It was an honor for me to be able to present there. That was a first for me. That was terrific. But I say even more importantly, I really think this year's Outbound Conference, Jeb, was I thought of it as a coming out party, but maybe a coming back party for the sales profession. And I'm curious about your impressions, having been there firsthand, what you took away about the state of sales and the state of enthusiasm for sales at the moment. We'll start there. I, th I believe that the state of sales is in very, very good shape. In fact, that was the reflection that I had coming in this morning to work was that I look back in, at Outbound and think about the sales profession and think about the faces, I think about the enthusiasm, the confidence, and I think about so many ultra-high-performing salespeople, salespeople who get it, they understand it. This is a profession. It's about helping people. It's about connecting the dots so that buyers can even trust themselves to make a, a purchasing decision or a purchase decision. It left me with the feeling that we're in very, very good shape. The sales profession is strong. And your colleague, Daryl Amy, said that he felt like that outbound was this line in the sand that had ushered in a new era of sales. I'll take any of those things, new era or a celebration or a comeback party. We just said we're back. And it was a labor of love. We did something that very few people were doing. We we're the first live conference back. We were the first live conference in the World Congress Center in Atlanta since the pandemic. And we were the only conference going on in that entire building. And if you've ever been to the Georgia World Congress Center, it is a massive, massive facility. It is cavernous. And now to be the only event in the entire place tells you a lot about where we were. So we took a big chance doing this, but we did have a celebration for the sales profession. I do feel good about the sales profession, and I think it is the greatest conference on earth. It's an event like none other, and it's only going to get better. You and I talked off microphone about you're already planning 2022 and how that experience is going to be even more inclusive and comprehensive. And so we will we'll be previewing that as well. So congratulations to you. I know there's a, there's a big team that's involved in not just coming up with the vision for this of how it serves salespeople, but just the million nuts and bolts and moving parts uh, to make it come off so well. So that's great to hear. And it brings me, though, to your latest book, Inked, which I am, I'm listening to it right now on, uh, on Audible. I'm already drawing a lot from it, Jeb, as I do with all of your books. And one of the things, message manager listeners, is Jeb opens with a very dramatic rendition of what many people might think of as a negotiation. And then he comes in and says, wait a minute, that's not the way it really works most of the time. You know, the Hollywood depiction of negotiation is a universe away from just the everyday negotiations that sales professionals, business leaders, business owners tend to have. And I, I'll just open with this question, Jeb, does that Hollywood vision of negotiation lead us sometimes into some bad assumptions or bad behavior? Perhaps. Uh, you know, I think that it probably leads people into believing that there's some magic to negotiation. And probably more than anything, it 
causes people to think that the negotiation is separate from all the other things that you're doing in the relationship. Now, Inked is a self-specific negotiation book. So I'm very careful. I'm not teaching people to negotiate in a courtroom or to negotiate a house or to negotiate buying a car or any of the hundreds of thousands of things that we negotiate every single day of our lives, including negotiating, going to the movie and which movie you're going to see with your spouse or where you're going to go to dinner. I'm focusing on negotiation inside the sales process. So I'm engaging a buyer. I'm moving all the way through. I get them to the point where they say they're ready to buy. Then we negotiate. So I'm just dealing with sales. So the problem with the Hollywood version of negotiating is a couple of things. Look, there's some really, really good books out there and they're great about negotiating and I've read them. I've seen the author speak, but I'm always left a little bit empty because it made me feel great. Like there's some heroic process of negotiating, but I can't put in my brain because I do, I, I negotiate every week. I, I probably am in five, six negotiations a week in sales. I can't in my brain equate trying to solve a hostage crisis with just trying to get a deal done and figure out like what are the terms of this particular contract going to be with this person I'm selling training to or negotiating with a purchasing organization on how I'm going to protect my IP. Those things are not the same thing. The stakes aren't as high. The risk isn't as high. And one of the reasons why you know, sales negotiation sometimes I think gets lost in the shuffle is because there are millions and millions of those conversations happening right now as we're doing this podcast. They're happening all the time. Now, those those little conversations, little at a time, one by one, are shaping organizations and there are they're causing billions and billions of dollars in pesos and yen and, and euros and pounds to exchange hands but they're really not that sexy and they're really mundane and they're, they're things that happen every single day. And the problem is if salespeople don't get good at them, it hurts the company. And the other problem is, is that companies are really, really good at training their buyers how to be better negotiators, not necessarily training their salespeople how to be better negotiators. So in a lot of cases, the salesperson's getting their rear end handed to them by someone who's professional at it. So the reason that I, I put that story up front to make the point is, it's a little bit of drama. Like I just want to make the point and I'm, and it's a little bit of tongue in cheek and I am poking a little bit at some of these negotiating books that have gotten huge audiences and they sold millions of copies, but I just don't think that they gave anybody any real information that allows you to really be a good negotiator. They give you some tactics and some tips and some, some strategies and things that work in terms of influence and working with people. And there's certainly great content. I, there's some of them that I really enjoy reading I'm just missing how it helps me sitting down with my buyer inside the sales process on Thursday afternoon, negotiate three words in a contract that are holding us back from getting a deal done. And you even go so far as to give us the nice truth, very simply put, sales negotiation is boring, like is. a lot of parts of a process. But I think that was a very important insight, very important premise to this whole notion of sales negotiation. It is part of a larger process. And if you're continuing to miss out, to negotiate against yourself, to leave money on the table day after day, week after week in repeatable ways across deals, then that becomes a very, very expensive problem. So maybe you could speak to that and just how is it that the best sales professionals consider it as part of a process and not separate from as some separate animal. 
Well, that to me is what makes sales negotiation in a way different than other negotiations because you cannot separate the sales negotiation from the sales process, even though that's how it's treated. So I made the point early on, you're a company, you want to make your salespeople better salespeople. So what do you do? You go hire a negotiating company to train your salespeople. There's lots of them out there and they do really, really good work. I've been to some of their training. It's it's interesting. It's fun. It's packed full of information. However, what I learned in those courses helped me negotiate a house that I purchased more than it helped me negotiate a deal that I'm trying to get done. The reason is, is that the people that are teaching those courses are likely good at negotiating, but they're not really good at selling. And you can't like negotiate a deal in a sales process unless you've done all the right steps in the sales process. I mean, if you went, hello, want to buy, and now you're negotiating, what are you negotiating? What's the basis that you're working on? You have no information. You have no leverage. You have not done anything to change the motivation curve for the people that you were negotiating with. And likely your buyer is telling you in the negotiation that they have a lot of other alternatives. They can do go work with your competitor, maybe multiple competitors. They could do it on their own. They could try something different. But because you haven't done enough in the sales process to eliminate or neutralize those alternatives, you're stuck in that situation. And so you're in a complete position of weakness and you lose. But if you manage the sales process, if you do a great job in the sales process, you strengthen your position at the closing or negotiating table as a salesperson. And that table is a figurative table, not a literal table. Sometimes it is. But you strengthen your position in those situations because you did all the steps in the sales process. So you cannot be a good sales negotiator unless you are a good salesperson. And you have to do both of those things in tandem in order to get the outcomes that you desire. Jeb, I'm hoping you can go back. There's something you mentioned that I think was also really profound that you mentioned in the book as well, is that we oftentimes adopt the clothing of negotiation as a buyer. We're more accustomed to that. The advice that we get is how, as a, if you're a buyer, as opposed to a seller, you can be a good negotiator. And, and maybe that helps skew things as well. So people are just naturally, they adopt a certain persona and they're not seeing it from the standpoint of a, of a sales professional. Though as you think through, as you say, being a good seller, not just a, a, a good negotiator from that standpoint, what is your approach as you get into the book in terms of the overall process and where negotiation fits in? Again, instead of it being some sort of extraneous piece here. Well, I think that's one of the things that we run into. So adopting the skin of the buyer is that we, because we negotiate all the time ourselves, we sometimes, when we're negotiating, we forget that who we are, what our role is. We begin making decisions for the buyer based on being the buyer. Some of that happens when we teach people to negotiate. So we teach people to negotiate. I watch negotiating classes where you're teaching you how to be the negotiator. Like I'm negotiating from the buyer standpoint, because that's the easiest thing for us to connect with. You just think about it. If you go to a negotiating training and they're teaching you, like, tell us the last negotiation you were in. Well, I was buying this. Okay, let's go through that process. Well, in that situation, in almost every situation as the buyer, not all, but almost every one, you are in a position of power because you have more, more alternatives. And, and power is derived from alternatives. In other words, 
if I'm trying to buy something from you, Jim, and I have six other alternatives, then I dilute your power at the negotiation table. If, for example, let's say that right now I'm building a house and you're the only person that has lumber, and at this time and place, lumber is a little bit scarce, so you have something that I want that no one else has, then I have only one alternative and that is to buy from you, which puts me in a position of weakness and puts you in a position of power as a seller. Think about trying to put on a, a conference. We put on the outbound conference in the middle of a pandemic and we are doing it under a time crunch where everything is changing around us. Now we were in a lot of situations where we got taken to the woodshed when it came to negotiating because we didn't have another alternative. I mean, if we had pushed it too far and that vendor had walked away from us, we would have destroyed the show. And in those situations, those vendors, a couple of them took advantage of us, creating something called resentment and a little bit of contempt. <laughs> and those vendors may not be back next year working with us because they were in a position to extract, as I say, maximum flesh, and they did, versus being in a position of power and still doing the right thing. Like, you know, There's nothing wrong with getting the price that you deserve in that moment, but you also have to do the right thing. So in those situations, when you look at it from that lens, it's a little bit tough. When you look at it as a salesperson, you think the process matters. I'm going to have to negotiate. Sometimes you don't have to. Sometimes you're so good in the process, the person just says yes. And that happens often. I would say that in our world, even though I, I like I said, I, I probably go through five, six negotiations a week. That's a, a fraction of the number of contracts that we sign during a weekly period. So we'll typically do maybe 20, 30 deals during a week if we negotiate five of them. And most of those negotiations are benign. They're almost always terms and conditions, not price. So in those situations, it's just a handful. It's just a few. And if you do a good job in sales, in most cases, you won't really negotiate. You may answer a question. You may say, the, the buyer might say, hey, would it be okay if we just change this one term? Would it be okay if we change this word? And you go, yeah, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm willing to give that away for free. Not a big deal. That's reality. If you're negotiating all the time, like if every deal you go through is negotiating, then there's either two things happening. One, you're in a very, very, very competitive industry, very competitive, where there's lots of people that can steal your business, or you're really not doing a very good job in the sales process. So people aren't really bought in and they feel like they need to negotiate because they don't trust you that you've given them the best price. And it seems you might be also late in the selling conversation many times because you're getting plugged in. You haven't really framed the problem. You haven't established your unique qualities of how you can solve that problem and really worked with that buyer, that prospect. So that, like you say, when you come toward the end, they're not trying to beat you up on things. You're not seen as a substitutable vendor along the way as well. Well, yeah, in a lot of those cases, if you're in late and you didn't go through the sales process, again, you cannot separate the sales process from the negotiation. But if you get in late and they bring you in, a good example would be you get in late and you respond to the RFP and they bring you in as a finalist and then they start negotiating with you. But you really didn't do any any discovery work. Almost always you're being used. So they've already picked who they're going to do business with. And they're just using you to bring the other person's terms and conditions or prices in line with where they want to be. I'm pretty good at knowing when I'm being used and I almost never negotiate in this situation. So if I feel like I'm being used and I don't really have a choice, I just walk away. I'd rather save my dry powder for another day versus use it all in a situation where there is no win for me. I'm going to lose. 
And salespeople delude themselves in believing that they're going to win in those situations, usually because they don't have a pipeline. And you're usually in those situations because you didn't have a pipeline and you get pulled into things and you go, okay, well, I got an opportunity. At least I'm working on something, but you never win. Another way of looking at this is that when we start thinking about the sales process and sales negotiation is that you're using the sales process to bend win probability in your favor. In the book, we talk about MLP strategy, which is essentially the chessboard of selling. So from the very beginning, ultra performers, what they're doing is they're looking at how do I bend my buyer's motivation to do business with me, the individual buyer. So how do I align their motivation so that they're saying, I really want to do business with Jim. That helps because the more motivated they are to do business with you, the individual, the more likely they are to neutralize or look at other alternatives as unacceptable. We're engineering the relationship so I can cause the buyer to feel more motivated to do business with me. And if there are multiple stakeholders, then I need to understand that. I'm also understanding what each stakeholder's list looks like, because that's going to be important when I am at the negotiation table to understand those individual lists so that I'm focusing on covering the things that are important to them. That's also important when you're building your business case and you're delivering your, pres your final presentation, my proposal. So I focus on that. I also have to minimize my own motivation. So that's by having a big pipeline, I'm less motivated for any individual deal. Another way of saying that is I can sell like I don't have to sell. The more motivated I am to close the deal, the more likely I am to lose the deal because of the way that I, I respond and interact with my stakeholders. And if I do get the deal, the more I'm going to give away of my commission check to get the deal. Power, as we've described, is derived from your alternatives. So the more alternatives you have, for example, you know, Jim, let's just say you're the only person in town selling lumber and there are multiple builders, then you as the seller have massive power. Now, in that situation where you have massive power, if you leverage that power the wrong way, then you're going to end up destroying relationships with builders who, when you don't have power, won't want to do business with you anymore because they realize that you took advantage of the situation. So you got to be very careful. That doesn't mean that you can't raise your prices because, you know, pure economics, supply and demand matter. But giving it to somebody just because you can isn't always the best thing to do because in sales, it's not just about selling it once. It's about building a long-term relationship. Now, clearly, if you're selling ice and it's in the middle of a hurricane and you're only going to be there selling ice once, none of that matters. But when we're talking about B2B complex sales. These long-term relationships do matter and you can be careful how you use your power. However, in most cases, the seller enters the relationship in a weaker power position than the buyer because the buyer has alternatives. One of those alternatives is to do nothing. They always have that alternative. One of the alternatives is to do it themselves. They could do it in-house. Then they have all the different competitors out there. They could do things in different configurations. They could choose different ways of doing things, but they have different alternatives. That gives them power. So what you want to do is you want to, in the sales process, either eliminate something as an alternative. So for example, if you said I could do it in-house, then I might ask questions around that process to help you become aware that that really isn't something you want to do. So for example, let's just say that I've got Salesgrave University. It's an LMS. It's software as a service. I, I buy the software from someone else. And I said, well, I, I could build it my, on my own. And then you said, well, tell me about your plans for doing that. And as I started walking you through the plans, I become aware that that's really not something I could do. I'm saying it, but it's not really an alternative because I don't have a software team that could build that. I can't do this. It's too expensive. All the things that come with building a software program. So what I'm doing through the sales process is I'm 
trying to build motivation. I want you to be motivated to do business with me. I'm using the relationship to do that. At the same time, I'm asking questions. I'm uncovering problems and issues and alternatives. I'm finding out what it is that you want. I'm able to look at even things my competitors offer and ask questions that show you that those things aren't bright as shiny as they might be. But I'm either neutralizing, when I say neutralize is, I'm making those alternatives feel like they're less like alternatives or I'm eliminating them altogether. So my goal is to reduce the number of perceived alternatives that the buyer has, right? While increasing the individual stakeholders motivation to do business with me. In the middle of all this is something called leverage. Leverage is anything that you have that someone else wants that you're able to use to bend their behavior in a way that you want their behavior to bend. This is important because in most cases, the buyer has more power. Either they're bluffing you, like they're telling you I got competitors out here. You don't always know, or you know they have competitors, or you know they have alternatives, but they're almost always in a stronger position as you are. And by the way, this is something that most sales experts and trainers don't tell salespeople. They're like, you know, you got to go to the top, go to the CEO, do this, do this. But they don't really get the truth is, is that in most cases as, as a seller, you're not in the power position and you're not going to be in the power position. You use leverage to put yourself in the power position because when the buyer has alternatives, they say to the seller, I don't really want to go through all these steps in your sales process. Just give me your prices. I don't want to go in these steps in the sales process. Just give me your information. I don't really want to go in these sales processes. Do this for me. In most cases, the salespeople dance. And if you have an empty pipeline, you are definitely dancing. Like you're break dancing for them <laughs> because you think since they have the power that you have to dance to their tune. What really good salespeople do, and this is the art, like this is the symphony of selling, is they say to the buyer, I get that you have all these, this power. I get you have all of that, but I got information that you want. You want my prices. You want my proposal. You want my free consulting. You want those things. And I'm willing to give you those things, except for you got to pay a price for it. I never give my leverage away for free. Now, that's not how they say it. They say it like this. They say, Jim, I, I totally get that you want to see my prices. And most of my competitors are happy to just to give you prices because they have a box and they force all their customers to fit into the same box. But Jim, that's not how I do business. The thing is, is I recognize that each of my customers is unique and different and all of their situations are different. So for me to give you a proposal, what you're looking for, I need to get to know you better. And all I'm looking for is just to spend a little bit of time asking you some questions, making sure I truly understand your goals, understand your operations, understand how you do things. And then I'm going to come back with a blueprint for exactly how we would serve your company, give you some prices that you can work with. Because at the end of the day, we're going to build the box around you. And so I'm only going to need about 30 minutes. And I'm going to need that next week to come walk through your plant. And then I shut up. And no one ever says no because that makes sense, right? It makes sense that you're unique. I'm using a lot of influence tools here. I'm making them feel good, significant. I'm using a takeaway. I'm not willing to do that for you. And then they say, okay, let's do that. And if they said, I don't care about any of that stuff. I just want your price. I'm getting up and walking away. Now, most salespeople won't do that, but the salesperson who does, again, leverage, I'm doing the takeaway. I've walked away from maybe a dozen deals in my life. I've never had one 
not one that I've walked away from that they didn't come back to me and say, well, will you get back into the mix and we'll, we'll do it by your terms. But by being willing to walk away from the deal, not the negotiation, not the table, I'm not negotiating the table, I'm negotiating the sales process, completely different animal, but I'm willing to do that. I bend them back to my sales process. And I talked about this in sales EQ as well. That's what I'm trying to do. I need to get them back to my sales process so I can work the sales process, engineering the relationship, which allows me to connect with the individual stakeholders answering their five most important questions. Do I like you? Do you listen to me? Do you make me feel important? Do you get me in my problems? Do I trust and believe you? When I answer those questions in the affirmative, they're much more willing to dump the other alternatives and do business with me. I have to do that. Never, ever, ever, ever give leverage away for free, ever. And if you get this, if you understand the MLP strategy or process for controlling the sales chessboard, you're going to end up in a lot more deals where you're not negotiating. And by the way, when you are negotiating, the negotiations are going to typically be rather benign. So rather than negotiating price, which you have already worked out way before that, you're going to be negotiating terms and conditions. And if you are negotiating price, then it's going to sound like this. I'm going to say, Jim, look, man, this has been great. I really want to do business with you. But now they already made a decision to do business with you. You already won the deal. Now you say, well, what's the but? Well, here's the thing. My budget only allows me to do this much. Is there any way that we could come in at this? And I'll have people come to me all the time and say that. I'll have learning and development companies will say, listen, I really want to do business with you, but I only have this much budget left this year. Is there any way we can work within that budget? And if it's not some massive gap, like something stupid, I'm going to go, yeah, let's, let's do that. Can I get you to do this for me? So I'll ask for something else. I never give anything unless I get something in return. But I'll say, can you do this for me? Can you give me four more weeks to get this done, which will make it a little bit easier for me because I won't have to put so many resources on this up front. And that'll help me stretch my Mm -hmm. budget out. Or there's a module that you can get into the next budget cycle or, or whatever the case might be. Exactly. It's all about when I got there, they already picked me. I already won. And that's one of our core rules with negotiating is, you, you know, you, I don't negotiate until I've won. So I win first, then I negotiate. Very hard for people to get, but I'm doing it at the point where they said, I want to do business with you. But they're saying that because they've looked at all the alternatives that they have other than doing business with me. And none of those alternatives feel like they're the right choice. And because of that, I'm the only alternative. I'm suddenly in a better power position at the negotiation table. Jeb, great. You've walked through a great process and makes a lot of sense. You've given us some great examples that resonates. I've been on sales calls myself through much of the day, so my voice is disappearing. So before we wrap up, and I I think it's a really important point, you brought it up in Inked, and I've heard you talk about this in other settings as well, is the importance of emotional discipline of controlling your own head. So whether you're approaching this from an abundance mentality because your pipeline's healthy and you have a really good sense of your ideal customer and where you best fit the kind of business you want, or you're at a scarcity mentality where the pipeline is not looking so good and you really need something this quarter, that certainly affects your decisions and your success levels. Could you talk just a little bit about through the process of where that emotional discipline really comes into play and how our listeners can build that? Well, emotional discipline is the center of the universe for negotiating because in every negotiating conversation, the human being in that conversation that exerts the greatest emotional control is going to have the highest probability of getting their desired outcomes. And that's just basic. And this is true whether you're negotiating as a buyer or negotiating as a seller. So 
that emotional control for you as a, as a seller really begins with managing the sales process. If you skipped all the steps in the sales process, you know you didn't earn it, right? If you skipped all the steps in the sales process, you know that your buyer's in a lot bigger power position. If you have an empty pipeline, you're selling from a place of desperation versus a place of abundance. So for you as a salesperson, you must never forget this. Relaxed assertive confidence when you're closing, when you're negotiating is your most powerful emotional position or foundation. The easiest, fastest way to gain and grow this emotional discipline is through a full pipeline. I know this sounds weird. I know it sounds crazy, but the truth is, is that if you're prospecting every day, you're going to be a way better, way better negotiator. If you're closing a lot of deals, if you've covered your, your quota for the quarter or for the month, you're going to be a lot better negotiator because you don't have to negotiate. So you're going to show up in a better position. But it all begins with emotional discipline. And I think that if you choose to read Inked, and I'll, I'll hold it up if for the people. I know that we got a camera in here, so we're taping some of this. <laughs> but, you know, if you... And you're in a position and, you know, if you want to learn how to manage your you know, emotions, if you want to learn how to use some different frameworks for controlling the conversation and even getting past some of the games that buyers play, and they're taught to play these games. And a lot of your buyers are professionals and they know exactly how to poke you in a way that disrupts your emotional control. They want to get you back on your heels because they know that when you lose emotional control, they're in a much better position. And I, I'll leave you with one, you know, one situation and I'll, I'll explain how this works just through this example. So we had a, a company that we've been working on a deal with for a couple of months and we knew when they needed the training to start for their organization. So they had told us we have to have these people in the field trained. We were dealing with learning development. Learning development in this situation just didn't have enough people to get it done, nor did they want to buy a license to do it on their own. Had we given them the curriculum and then we had done train the trainer, we still wouldn't have met their deadlines that the executives were giving them. So from our standpoint, one of the things that we understood was that there was a timeline. And the long, long, we knew who our competitors were, and we had slowly but surely eliminated those competitors. So we were very, very careful to listen to the conversation. So we knew that by the time we were in the negotiation, that we were the vendor of choice. So this is called VOC. We talk about this a lot in the book. You need to win first. So we, we had won the deal. And then they came to us to negotiate. So we switched from the learning and development group, the people that were buying our service, to the purchasing group. And it was like this instant, you can't talk to us anymore, you can only talk to the purchasing. It's a, it's a classic move, right? Remove the relationship with you have. So now we're dealing with people who we have no relationship with, who don't care, and their only job is to squeeze as much out of us as possible for their organization. Now my salesperson is highly invested in this deal. She's been working on this for months. It's really, 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 really big. There is a massive commission check for her at the end of this, and she wants it. So she talks to the director of purchasing, and the director of purchasing says this to her. Classic move. She didn't recognize it because she's so emotional. She wants the deal. She wants it. And the director of purchasing knows that she wants it. Director of purchasing says, okay, so here's the deal. We want to do business with you and we're going to get this contract signed. This is going to be a no brainer. Everything's done. Everybody's ready to go. But the thing is, is that for contracts that are over a half million, we have to issue an RFP. And if you guys could get this thing under a half a million dollars, then we wouldn't have to do that. And we can just get this signed right then. So she calls me up and says, she goes, look, they want to get the deal done. And, and here's what she said to me. So why don't we just go ahead and get this thing in at like $499,000 and it'll be okay. And I said, well, how much is the proposal? She said, well, 900. 
So we're going to take roughly half, 50% off of the top in order to get this deal signed. She goes, yeah, but we can get it signed. Classic example of a trained buyer using the salesperson's emotions against them. The salesperson is talking, trying to sell me into taking basically half of the price out of the deal in order for her to close the deal. So I'm grinning. Like I'm on the other side of the, I'm like, that was such a good move. Like so good. This is why sometimes it makes sense to have someone working with you because sometimes you get so blinded, right? In those situations that you can't see. And I said, here's what you want you to do. You go back to the buyer and you tell the buyer that we are eager for the RFP that we are so happy that they're going to put this out to RFP because then we're going to have an opportunity to prove ourselves. And then I want you to tell her that we don't have enough resources to respond quickly. So let us know when it's going to come out because it will probably take us two weeks to three weeks to get it ready to go. Knowing that that would clearly put us past when they needed their deadline that they'd set. They said the deadline is this, we have to get it in. And then we went back to our buyer and said, listen, it turns out you guys are going to get an RFP and we're going to probably not be able to get in for two weeks. And our experience with this is usually when things go to RFP, it at least takes a couple of months to get them out of RFP. And we're thrilled. Thank you so much for choosing us to be in the RFP process. She goes, why would I do that? I, I just said, trust me, go do this. So we go through the process, tell them all these things. And two hours later, we have a deal signed. And what happened was we didn't allow our emotions to get in the way. We knew in that particular situation, we knew this, that they needed the deal done. They had a timeline. And when we called the bluff, hey, we're willing to fill out the RFP, we're willing to do all those things, that they went back and had an internal conversation and said, well, that didn't work. Okay, we'll sign the deal because we had a fair deal on the table. And that's exactly what we did. And that worked for them. So I think what we have to recognize is that in that moment, the sales rep, emotions you know, on fire, like she lost it. If when we calmed down and thought about it, we were in a lot better position than we thought we were in terms of being able to negotiate the deal. And that's what people, everybody who's in sales have to get. Manage your emotions first. And if you do that, then it's a lot easier for you to manage the outcome. And that, message managers, is where a connection issue, unfortunately, forced the close of my conversation with Jeb Blunt without the usual thanks and goodbyes and acknowledgements. But that was, again, very motivating, very practical. We'll have all the links to Jeb, his books, and Sales Gravy in our show descriptions. And Jeb, thanks again. I hope you, listeners, are enjoying the podcast. If you are enjoying it, then please do us a favor. If you would share that with friends and colleagues who likewise would find this valuable, we invest our time and money in this, and we're happy to be able to do so. I hope you will subscribe, rate, and review. That affects the algorithms. That's a big deal in the podcast world so that others can also find us. And if you know of associations or companies that would benefit from having me speak to them about ways to manage their message, then please put us in touch. My email is jim at jimcar.com. And again, I would also welcome your connection on LinkedIn. Until next time, thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at manageyourmessagepodcast.com and jimcarr.com. Please help us serve you 
and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.